Now we know that David can read long passages of scripture up here, and we, you passed the test. Very good. We uh, are continuing in our series in the book of Acts, um, and uh, we continue to talk about the church and how God is working to expand his kingdom through this, cult, this thing called the church. And it's been exciting for me uh, to personally study th- this passage and uh, to look at the book of Acts and see uh, what did God do back then and how is he going to continue to work today to build up his people, the church. And uh, before we go on, actually, I'm going to just ask us to go to the Lord. Uh, let's pray one more time and um, just let's ask the Lord to speak to us uh, through his word. So please join me uh, once again in prayer. Father, uh, we are joyed to be in your presence, and we are joyed to be redeemed through Jesus, our great Lord and Savior, the King, who laid down his life for us. And we are joyed also and grateful to be part of the body of Jesus, the church. And as we look at this passage uh, this morning, uh, Lord, we ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, would take the Word of God and apply it to our hearts, to apply it to us as a church. Help us to see uh, the relevance of what happened 2,000 years ago for today here at CFC uh, in our context. So would you uh, minister and would you use your Word to shape and transform us as your people? For the glory of Jesus, and in his name we pray, amen. So last week, uh, we looked at Acts chapter 3 and 4, and uh, we looked at what is the marks of the Spirit-filled church, and we saw in the first three chapters of Acts that uh, the predominant themes here is the Holy Spirit. We live in the age of the Holy Spirit now, and as the early believers and apostles were gathered in Jerusalem, Uh, They were praying, waiting upon the Lord, and waiting for the Spirit to come. This is Jesus' promise to us today, that we, when we are, when we receive the Holy Spirit, we will be enabled to be His witnesses. The Holy Spirit descends on the day of Pentecost, and then you see the church um, just declaring and proclaiming Christ boldly, and you see the church uh, beginning to face opposition and challenge and persecution. And yet, despite the challenges that the Holy Spirit continued to strengthen and enable them to boldly proclaim the gospel. And this is the mark of the Spirit-filled church. And may I say that this is also the mark of the Spirit-filled Christian. The mark of the Spirit-filled Christian is that you and I will be supernaturally empowered to do things and to proclaim the gospel in ways that we naturally would not have been able to do. And this is what God is doing um, today. Now, a lot of people and a lot of us here would say that uh, we live in very difficult times as Christians. We look at the surrounding culture and Uh, We look at the value systems of the culture that we live in, and we see that it's becoming more secular, more liberal, however you might describe it. And 
um, Christianity on the whole is becoming less and less popular here in the States. It's thriving in Africa, it's thriving in South America, and, and uh, in Asia, but we see in the western part of the world, in Europe, uh, here in America, it's actually, um, it's actually plateaued, or some studies would indicate that it's a little bit in decline as well. And so we see a lot of secularization happening in our context, and it's difficult. But I want to, I want you to see just from this study of the book of Acts that the church throughout its history has always faced opposition. This is part and parcel. This is the, this is the norm. This is par for the course. Christianity does not rise when the culture and the elements around it are favorable towards the gospel. Christianity has oftentimes risen in the face of great opposition. There is a scholar, a Christian scholar, his, his name is Larry Hurtado. And he is a New Testament scholar who has researched the opposition and he's researched the early church and he wrote a book which I thought was a great title. And he wrote this book called, Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? Why would anyone believe in this small, seemingly cultic band called Christianity? In this small group of ragtag followers of Jesus, right? A zealot, tax collector, fisherman, right? These are among his most closest followers. And Larry Hurtado documents that the early Christians were widely ridiculed, uh, widely, and they were excluded from circles of influence and business, oftentimes. Uh, Christians were oftentimes put to death, right, as we know, many, many martyrs in this uh, first century, first uh, three centuries. And the Roman authorities were especially harsh against Christianity, against Christians than other religious groups. Why? Well, other religious groups, even though they would adhere to their particular deity or their particular set of beliefs, they also were very um, pluralistic in their beliefs. So whatever other belief systems or religious groups there were, uh, they would pay proper homage and respect to the other religious groups and other deities as well, and they would kind of syncretize or include them into their belief system. But Christians, of all people, were stubborn. They would not bow down to and they would not acknowledge any other deity or any other religious system or any other belief system but Christ alone. And thus, there's the martyrdom, there's the opposition, right? Um, when Julius, or when, uh, when the Caesars, Augustus or Nero, whoever, says, when the Romans would say, he is Lord, Christians would say, no, Caesar is not Lord. He is not the king. Jesus is Lord. He is the true king. And so it was an act of treason against the Roman Empire to be a Christian. It was an exclusive claim to Christ. Well, in Acts chapter 4 and 5, in these passages that we just read, we are seeing this beginning to happen. And what you will see in these, in the, these two chapters is that 
the gospel continues to thrive despite pressure and opposition from the outside, but the gospel continues to thrive even with internal problems as well. And these internal problems we know are motiv motivated by Satan in Acts chapter 5 as we know. So, why did the church thrive back then? Why did the church thrive in Acts chapter 4 and 5 despite this? And my question is, why will it continue to thrive today? Well, there are four things that I, I just observed in these passages uh, this past week as I was looking at it. And these four common elements or themes that, uh, that were true then and that will be true today as the church continues to thrive because of Jesus' promise to build his church. The first one, and if you look at Acts chapter 4, verse 32, uh, this part right here, is that the church was marked, if you look at this passage, it's marked by radical, radical generosity. Okay, radical generosity. Verse 32, let's look at this passage again. Luke writes, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. But if you look at this passage, and you look at the, the, the internal dynamics of what's happening in the church, it's the same thing as we find in Acts chapter 2, right? Verses 42 to 47, that very common, familiar passage. But the gospel created this, this uh, genuine transformation of heart, and it created genuine unity, and it created this this radical generosity among the people. And one thing that is very evident in this early church in the book of Acts is one of the clearest signs that the gospel has truly taken hold of the heart. Not just an intellectual grasp of the gospel, but that, but that the gospel has been embraced and taken root in the heart is that there will be, your life will be marked by radical generosity. That is one of the clearest indicators of gospel transformation in the life of any believer, right? The, the church did not focus on creating unity for the sake of unity. You see that this church, as Luke writes, they had everything in common. No one claimed, well, this is my life. These are my rights, and I'm the one who determines what to do with it. This gospel transformation in which they had received the grace of God through Jesus, knowing that they were unworthy sinners who have been redeemed and forgiven by the grace of Jesus created such a gospel transformation that they were willing to see the needs within the church, any other brother and sister, and if there was any other need, their heart just naturally gave themselves to that need. 
This is genuine unity, right? No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. And again, some Christians, they kind of look at these passages and they think, well, this is talking about communism, right? (laughs) No, it's not communism. This is not communism. This is voluntary, right? It's a voluntary sacrifice, giving. Um, It says in this passage, right, in in Acts 4, that uh, from time to time, right, as there were needy persons, uh, people would just sell, just sell their lands or houses, and they would just give. Uh, This was a voluntary grace giving motivated by love. And so this is, this is one of the clearest uh, ideas that the mark of Christianity, as Francis Schaeffer would put it, is love, is love. And this is tremendously attractive to the outside world, right? That they saw the gospel being lived out, not just spoken, but they saw the ways that people were relating to one another. And my question for us as we look at this passage, what does generosity look like? A lot of times when we think of the word generosity, we associate it with finances. Finances, yes. Material possessions, yes. Of course, it includes that idea. But generosity comes in many, many different forms. We're not just talking about financial generosity. Uh, generosity is a matter of the heart. It's a spirit of generosity. It's a, it's a matter of willingness to say, it's, this, it's not just my possessions, it's I'm, I'm giving myself to you. My time, my energy, my talents, my attention, my focus. Um, it's this other-centeredness that the gospel creates, this dynamic. And, and stinginess or greediness would be the mark that the opposite where in a sense there's a there's a protection of your own rights protection of your own time protection of my energy this belongs to me my uh, my life or these things come first Uh, that indicates that the gospel hasn't really truly sunk in it hasn't really reached the core of your being yet because this was clearly this was clearly the, the gospel power at work the question is, how has God given you generously in Christ so that you could be generous to others, right? Has that sunk in? Has that really gone to the depths? Why could the people be so generous? Well, verse 33, Luke records this, and this is, this is the key. Luke 33, uh, 433, Luke says, And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. But this idea of the resurrection, the reality of the risen Jesus, and great grace that God was pouring out, they could be generous because Jesus, the power of the risen Jesus, is living inside of them to enable them to live a whole different way. But if Jesus is risen from the dead— then that means that our greatest inheritance, our greatest life is not in this life, but it's in eternity, right? Christ is risen. 
And this created an eternal perspective to know that in the end, that all that, that you and I need is in Christ. Everything. It's this continual focus on the reality of Christ and his grace that God pours out. Verse 36, Luke records the example of this man named Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus. And he includes this example of Barnabas of a man who sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Who is this guy Barnabas? Uh, Barnabas you don't hear too much about. He's kind of like a, an unsung hero. But he, it's like people like Barnabas who was kind of more in the background, these are people who were like the backbone of the church. He's mentioned, well, several times throughout the book of Acts. Um, as we know, he was a Levite. Ethnically, he was a foreigner. Son uh, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He had a good eye, a glad heart. He was able to see people. He was able to see who they were. He was humble and trustworthy, according to Luke. He was patient with the imperfections of other people. Uh, this was one of, this was like an A-plus member in the church. Okay, this is who Barnabas was. Um, and he was extremely generous. And as an example, Luke provides this man who sold one, one of his fields, said, gave it to the apostles here. You see the needs, go ahead and distribute it as you see fit, as you see the needs of the people. So this, this man who is marked by genuine humility and submission. Right? But... In Luke chapter 5, we see a contrast to Barnabas. And Luke mentions this contrast to this couple named Ananias and Sapphira. And this is a very, this is a very, very sad incident of what happens in the early church. But the second thing I want you to see is that the church is marked by integrity and discipline. Marked by integrity and discipline. Um, I think one of the biggest criticisms against the church right? And this is not just here in the West, but I would say that one of the biggest criticisms I've heard while I was in Asia, uh, just wherever, is that the church is full, filled with hypocrites, or has uh, the church, you know, you see them say one thing, but they act totally differently, or um, you see some people who are kind of jaded or cynical from the church. They, they were once part of church. They left the church. Why? Because you know, I saw that there were, you know, Christians are, quote, hypocrites. And so this is one of the biggest criticisms against the church. And this is one of the biggest reasons why people leave the church. Well, in Acts chapter 5, we see that the leadership, the apostles, that they were ensuring that the church is marked by integrity and discipline. So here... In uh, Acts 5, uh, we read this incident, right? A, a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. In his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. Now, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? 
You've not lied to men, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. And the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Wow. Talk about um, a dramatic incident right here in this early church. But Ananias, this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, apparently had this field. They didn't have to sell it, right? But they sold it. And the sin that they committed was not so much dishonesty, but it was hypocrisy. It wasn't so much about dishonest about uh, bringing only part of the money, but claiming to give more than they actually did. They pretended and they were seeking their own glory rather than the building up of the church and for God's glory. So they were filled with pride, deception, and greed. Their focus was not upon God, upon Christ, but upon themselves. They were, verse 3, they were greedy. So they kept back part of the proceeds. And this verb means to pilfer, to embezzle. And it's actually the same verb that's used in the Greek version of Joshua chapter 7, where it talks about the whole story of the sin of Achan. And because of the story of the sin of Achan, uh, where he had basically kept some of the spoils when he wasn't supposed to, the whole nation of Israel was about to be judged by God. So the sin here was a sin of motive and heart, self-centeredness and greed. This was what was going on. Now, the early church, and somehow Peter knew that Ananias and his wife um, had lied, presumably by the Holy Spirit, because he tells Ananias, you've not lied to men, but to, to the Holy Spirit. But they had the responsibility to preserve the purity of the church. And uh, they were safeguarding the integrity of the church. This is so important. If the church is marked by hypocrisy, if it's marked by allowing um, ongoing sin to happen, then the church does lose its credibility and its power, its gospel witness. And so the apostles had this responsibility, but we have this responsibility of ongoing repentance in our lives, right? Uh, we have this responsibility before God to uh, come before Him and, and through the gospel, right, to come to Jesus and to, uh, to walk with the Lord and to, to live this life of repentance before Him. And God brought, brought this immediate judgment. In verse uh, 7 through 11, we see the same thing happening with uh, his wife Sapphira. So, uh, Sapphira, I mean, this, this woman comes in three hours later, un not knowing exactly what happened to her husband, right? And Peter gives him a chance. So, um, tell me, you know, did, did you sell the land for this much? Like giving her one opportunity to just be honest, to confess. She goes, yep, we did. And instantly, you know, Peter said, well, you know, you're going to be joining your husband now. And uh, instantly she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. 
So this was, this brought about in the church uh, quite, you can imagine, quite a, well, as the Bible describes, a fear came upon the whole church. Uh, but there's a sense in which God is holy, and there's a sense in which, in which God is present, and we've, we've got to take God seriously. We, another idea is to fear the Lord, not, not fear of judgment. Jesus is taking care of that, but there's a sense of reverential awe and fear that God is holy. And I want to live my life in such a way that reflects who he is, right? This is the early church. I still uh, remember uh, preaching a sermon on church discipline, okay? This is not the most popular sermon to preach, okay? Uh, but I still remember doing this uh, sermon on, on church discipline. And I remember, <laughs> well, one, two things, right? So this one guy uh, came up to me before the sermon. He said, so Pastor David, where are you going to be preaching on? Well, I'm going to preach on church discipline. And he looked really wide-eyed. He goes, really? Good luck. <laughs> Gee, thanks. <laughs> right? That's what you want to hear, right? And, but, you know, I, I preached all these different texts in, in the New Testament that's very clear, Jesus, Paul, you know, Acts, and all of this. But I still remember, I'm thinking, okay, after this sermon, we'll see if I have a job after this or not, right? Like, we'll see. Like, maybe, you know, like Steve in Acts chapter 6, if people are going to pick up the stones, okay, <laughs> see ya, honey, I may not see you next week, right? Like, I may be, this is it. But... I can't, I can't believe that people would come up to me right after that sermon and they would say the same things that they would just, they, they were thanking me for preaching this sermon. Why? Because they were saying, you know, the church that I came out of, uh, the previous context, there are so many issues and there are these problems, but no one did anything about it. Thank you. Thank you that you take this seriously. Thank you that, um, you know, this is a church that is really committed to, uh, to, you know, really following the word of God. Thank you so much. And it's still confidence in the people. Now, that was not my motive for preaching that message. You know, I want to instill confidence in our leadership. That was not, that didn't even go through my mind at all. Um, but I realized that that was the fact. Why? Well, even Christians, right? Even uh, the world, we all want integrity. And the way that integrity comes about is, is we're committed to the Word of God. We're committed to accountability. We're committed to discipling one another. We're committed to a culture where um, we don't just look the other way. That's not what we're committed to, right? But we're committed to loving, loving discipleship, uh, where we love you so much and we love one another so much, we're helping one another to grow closer to Jesus. That's how much we love you. And we love you so much that we don't want sin to take over your heart. That's how much we love you. Uh, we don't want anyone to be kept in its bondage. That's, 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 that's true love, right? And that's what we're committed to. It doesn't mean that no one has their faults. But what it does mean is that we learn to constantly walk with Jesus by his grace. In, in a way that honors God. But the third thing is this, uh, verse 14 to 16, the, the church was marked by great compassion and care for the marginalized and the sick. So look at verses 14 to 16. Luke writes, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, 
so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Now, we see that Christ, as I, as I talked about in the last message, that Christ is, is ruling from heaven, and just as he performed miracles on earth, he's performing miracles from heaven as well through the church. And this is what's happening here. But as the church, the church would be known here by its compassionate care for the people who are otherwise marginalized by, by society. Who are those who are outcasts and marginalized by, by society? Well, the demon-possessed, right? The sick, they are unclean, right? And um, these are the people who everyone else thought, you know what, there's, there's something wrong with them. We're going to separate ourselves from them. But the church was the one place where the people knew that they would be welcomed and loved and accepted. That despite their background and despite their uncleanness or whatever their condition, um, the grace of Jesus, the love of Christ through his people would receive them and would extend the healing, compassionate ministry of Jesus to them. So, Christians, uh, we, you know, this is, we're part of the greatest movement in the world. Why? Because uh, Christians throughout the history of the world, we have always set up hospitals, orphanages, schools. Um, this is, these are the healing and compassion ministries of Jesus. And the church is here to proclaim the gospel. And I'm, I got to say that I'm, I'm very, I'm very proud of our church. And I'm very proud of the way that we, uh, just in the past year, several months, you know, to see so many people who've been going into uh, whether it's assisted living facility, helping out our INS school, these backpacks, right, that we're trying to put together for our school for the Syrian refugees, right? Um, going into, you know, just trying to see how can we extend the love of Jesus to the people around us. This is attractive, right? That we're marked by generosity, not only within the church, but we're marked by generosity into our community. How do we continue to extend the generosity of Jesus and his compassion to those around us? This is what we're always thinking about as Christians. This is, how we're, that, this is the way that we're to live. Uh, it's an outward-focused life. And in verses 42, 42, I'm, I got to wrap this up. <laughs> but verses 40 to 42, I'm going to end with this. It says that um, Luke concludes, And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted wor worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. And one final thing that the church was marked by is marked by courageous faith in Christ, even in danger. The, the apostles were boldly declaring Jesus even at the risk of their own lives, right? They were imprisoned, they were beaten, but the reaction of the apostles after they're beaten is not, oh, that was, 
I didn't expect that. Forget it. This is too much. This is, you know, this is way too much sacrifice. The cost is way too high. They were, they had this opposite reaction. They were actually rejoicing that they, were, they would suffer, that they counted it worthy. They were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. This is the very opposite of human nature, right? But this is how much they saw Christ was, they knew that Christ is sovereign and they knew that that the suffering that they were going through was for the sake of the gospel. Now, as I mentioned last week in the message, one of the marks that's going to be true if we are faithful to gospel proclamation is we will face opposition. Like, it, 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 this is inevitable. There's, there's no such thing as a faithful church that just freely proclaims the gospel uh, among lily fields, right? And it's like, well, that was easy. Um, it doesn't happen that way. There's always going to be opposition for your faith in Christ. This is true back then, and it's true now. But if you think about it, Christians, we have a very subversive message and commitment. It's very, very subversive. Right? Um, we are claiming that Jesus is the only way in a society that would argue otherwise. We are calling people to repentance and to put their faith and to give their life completely to this person, Jesus. And to identify with Christ here in America is becoming increasingly unpopular, but in many parts of the world where Christianity is thriving, it's very unpopular. Asia, right? Africa. It's very unpopular to identify yourself with Christ, and yet the church is thriving. Now, we don't face physical persecution like they did back then here in America, right? No one's going to put you in jail for sharing the gospel here in the States. But you will face marginalization. If you're taking a stand with Christ, exclusive claim to Jesus, if you could stand with Jesus in sexual ethics, Right? In a day and age where, um, where we're kind of towing the line a little bit in, in sexual ethics. But if you identify with Christ, you cannot avoid some amount of opposition. It's inevitable. And as I said, if we're not facing any kind of opposition for our faith, then probably it's because we're not being courageous. We're not exposing our identity enough. We're playing it too safe. We shouldn't be unattractive because we're being rude or forceful, but at the same time, if we're not facing any opposition for the sake of the gospel, then we're playing it too safe. This is the mark of the church. And this is what makes the church, at the same time, ironically so attractive, was its combination of compassion and courage. It's bold conviction, but compassionate care. It's a very, very attractive combination. So, how, in light of God's word, how are we to live in generosity? Is your life marked by the generosity of Jesus? Have you experienced the grace of God? Have you experienced the grace of his forgiveness? 
have you experienced the mercy of Jesus? That though you and I are sinful and unworthy, and God is completely holy and righteous, yet he freely gave his son Jesus for us all. Is your, have you, has this message sunk into the heart in such a way so that your life is marked by a generous self-giving of yourself to people around you? Not just finances, time, energy, your focus, it's marked by this other-centeredness. What sins are you repenting of seeking to guard your heart against? Um, are you putting to death sin in your life? Are you, are you being vigilant to confess and to put to, to death uh, the roots of sin as it begins to appear in your heart? Do you see those roots of self-centeredness or coldness or uh, greed or lust or whatever it may be, but do you see the, these things begin to spring up, these whims, and then do you, do you begin to turn to Jesus? Is your life marked by repentance? Are you growing in compassion and care for the needs of the world? Are you growing in your self-giving? And are you growing in courage in your witness for Christ? Are you fighting against complacency and saying, no, I've got to take my missional focus up another notch because I don't want to be complacent. We're going to go into our time of communion right now. And as we do so, um, this is a generosity of Christ given to you that he shed his blood, his body, he broke his body for you and I. And so as you come, uh, I want you to just really prepare your heart, and as you're ready to come up, if you've been baptized, uh, you are welcome to partake of this Lord's table. Uh, you are welcome to this commune with Jesus. As our life um, declares to Jesus, Jesus, you gave your, yourself for me, and I need your forgiveness and grace and my life belongs to you. So would you come as you are prepared to do so?